Peter Tatchell, welcome to Tell a Friend. Glad to join you. I'll begin this interview by talking about the pressing issue of the day, the murder of George Floyd in America. Could you talk to me about what your reaction was to that murder? Well, my reaction was shock, dismay, anger, but also a recognition that he is just the latest of so many, uh, mostly unarmed black Americans who have been killed by police officers. It runs into the hundreds. Um, you know, the way the US police treat African-American communities is a complete violation of, of human rights. It is indicative of an epidemic of institutional police racism. And of course, it is a continuation of the racial violence on which the United States was built through slavery, lynchings, to the mass incarceration of black men, and through the economic exclusion of poor African-Americans. Um, this really is a wake-up call that it has to stop. And the president's response is appalling beyond belief. Um, you know, the way President Trump has reacted gives no sense of any responsibility, any attempt to try and resolve the situation. Um, you know, how can we call America a great democracy when these kinds of killings happen time and time and time again? I just shared the other day on my Twitter the video of a white police officer beating up a 14-year-old black girl, holding her down on the ground, punching her repeatedly. Nothing justifies this and nothing excuses the failure of law enforcement authorities in the United States to deal with racism within their ranks. As some people have remarked, it often looks like the US police are the KKK in uniform. And consequentially, there's been a wave of protests in Minneapolis, and there's been a few instances of police stations being set alight, shops being looted, and violence on the streets. What is your reaction to these protests, and what would you advise protesters in the way to air their grievances? Well, African Americans must decide for themselves how they respond. And I can understand the anger which has led to the violent protests. But most of the protests have been peaceful and dignified. Um, having said that, um, as Malcolm X once said, by any means necessary. And when African-Americans have tried repeatedly through the democratic process to get justice and been denied, it is little wonder that some in desperation will respond with violence. Violence begets violence. And it is no surprise that is what has happened. But then as Martin Luther King has said, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth leaves us all blind and toothless. There has to be a better way. But it's hard for me or anyone to say what should happen because we're not there. It's not our lives and we're not the ones who have been repeatedly shunned by the political establishment in the United States. 
Now, I want to shift our conversation and kind of backtrack back to the 1950s and 60s. And I was wondering if you could talk to me about what life was like for you growing up in Australia. Well, I was born in Melbourne, Australia in 1952. I grew up in the 1950s and 60s during a period of ultra-conservative government when communist red-baiting, uh, a McCarthyite-style witch hunt was underway. Anyone who held liberal progressive opinions was smeared as a communist. Uh, you could lose your job. And I did nearly lose my job for speaking out against the war in Vietnam, which Australia was involved with alongside the Americans. Um, my family's, uh, family was a very traditional working class. Um, my father was a factory worker. My mother was a housewife and sometimes worked in a factory. They were quite right-wing evangelical Christians. For them, everything in life revolved around the church. Um, we were very, very, very devout. Um, we were red oranges and not the only fruit by Jeanette Winterson or seeing the film. Uh, that pretty much sums up my family. Quite extreme, I'd say borderline fundamentalist. But somehow, out of that, I developed my own independent thought. I'd say that the pivotal early event in my life was in 1963 at the age of 11. I heard about the bombing of a black church in Birmingham, Alabama, where four young girls about my own age were murdered by white racists. As an 11-year-old boy, I was stunned, disbelieving, so shocked. I thought, how could anyone kill anyone, let alone four young girls in church on a Sunday morning. And that prompted my interest in the black civil rights movement and the work of Martin Luther King and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. For them, for me, those people were heroes. They were inspirations about what we all had a responsibility to do to fight injustice wherever we saw it to not look the other way, to not walk on the other side of the street. So I sort of adapted my religious upbringing to become um, you know, a, a very strong champion of social justice. Initially, while I was religious, motivated by those basic fundamental Christian values of I am my brother's keeper and my sister's keeper too, um, the Good Samaritan and the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, the poor shall inherit the earth. Um, it wasn't until some years later that I actually began my first activism. That was at the age of 15 in 1967, when a man who had escaped from prison uh, allegedly shot dead a warder during his jailbreak. Now, I remember reading a report in the newspaper uh, about the autopsy on the dead warder's body. At the age of 15, I worked out from where the escaped prisoner was standing when he allegedly fired the fatal shot and where the warder was standing when he was allegedly killed, it would, be, would have been almost impossible uh, for that bullet to have made that trajectory. And that prompted me to joined the campaign to stop his execution because he was slated to be hanged 
for killing this border. In my view, there was at least a reasonable doubt that he committed that crime. Nevertheless, uh, the campaign failed and he was executed. And that really destroyed my trust and confidence in the government, the police, the judiciary, the prison system. I thought, how could they hang someone when there was at least some doubt about that person's guilt? And so that made me a lifelong skeptic of authority. It made me question lots of things that I'd previously taken for granted. And what was the reaction of your parents to this 15-year-old who's politically engaged and who's questioning authority? Well, they were pretty horrified. Um, their view was that it wasn't my business. Um, indeed, my stepfather said, you know, according to St. Paul in the Bible in Romans, it says that the Christians should obey the law of the land because the powers that be are ordained by God. And I said to my stepfather, well, does that mean God ordained Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin? Um, I got a smack around the face for questioning his authority. Now, when you moved to London, you became involved in LGBTQ plus activism. When did you first realize or come to terms with your sexuality? And also, when did you realize that this was the fight for you to take part in? Well, of course, because of my deep religious upbringing, the idea that I might be gay just never crossed my mind. Um, it wasn't until I began work um, in a big department store in the design and display department that I met other gay people for the first time. And, you know, they weren't the monsters I'd been led to believe. Um, so over time, I began to sort of wonder, well, I'd sort of, you know, chase girls and, you know, thought of myself as heterosexual, but I never had any sexual feelings for women. So I began to wonder, maybe I'm gay. And uh, so I thought, well, <laughs> the way to test it out is to try it. And I did, and I liked it. Um, amazingly, I never had any shadow of doubt about my sexuality. You know, lying back on the bed with this guy who today is still my lifelong best friend, um, I remember thinking, hey, if this is what being gay is, then I'm definitely gay. You know, it was so sexually and emotionally fulfilling. So I didn't have any guilt or anxiety. I just thought the Bible's got it wrong. You know, sins in the Bible, you know, they're supposed to be about, you know, protecting people against harm or clearly consensual adult same-sex relations don't harm anyone. So back this, this is when I was still in Australia. And of course, there was no um, LGBT plus movement in Melbourne at that time. There weren't any helplines, advice agencies, nothing. But I was very spirited. Um, you know, I, I'd heard about, this is late 1969, I'd heard about one of the gay rights protests after the Stonewall riots, uh, which had taken place in New York. And I thought to myself, wow, I want to be part of this. I'd previously been, you know, campaigning against the death penalty, against Australia's involvement in Vietnam War, and in support of indigenous black Australian rights. But now this was my issue 
and I wanted to do something about it. Um, I can remember trying to encourage the few gay friends I had to do something, but they were all too afraid because in those days in the state of Victoria, of which Melbourne is the capital, uh, homosexuality was still a serious crime, punishable by several years imprisonment, and even by the prospect of enforced psychiatric treatment. So they were just too scared, too afraid. They said, what do you know? You're 17 year old, 70 years old, um, you know, go away, you'll get us all arrested. Um, so all I did was just write letters to newspapers and things like that. Um, it was very solitary. Um, also, I didn't really have any, you know, model of activism because there was no LGBT plus movement in Melbourne. So I looked back at the black civil rights movement in the United States. At the age of 17, I reasoned to myself, if black people are an oppressed minority who deserve justice, then so too are LGBT plus people. Um, I also reasoned that it had taken by this time about 50 years for the black civil rights movement to win basic formal legal equality in most of the United States, uh, to end segregation in the Deep South and to repeal other racist laws. I know that wasn't the end of it, but, but that took about 50 years. So in my you know, naive mind at the age of 17 in 1969, I reasoned it would probably take about 50 years to win LGBT plus equality in Western countries like Britain, Australia, and the United States. And uh, <laughs> it was a guess, but it's more or less almost right. And when you came out to your family and friends, did you fear about your own safety? Because, I mean, kids today fear about coming out, so I can only imagine what it would have been like at that time with conservative parents, um, conservative in values. D didn't you fear about your safety? Well, I did, and I delayed telling them for some time. Um, I knew that if I told them straight out, they'd probably have a mental breakdown because for them, homosexuality is one of the worst possible sins. Um, so I did a sort of the drip, drip, drip approach. <laughs> you know, I'd drop hints every now and then. I'd say if there was an item about gay people on the news, I'd, I'd make a remark, you know, that's it's so wrong that gay people are being persecuted simply because of who they love. Or I'd say that, um, you know, a friend of mine at work is gay and he seems fine. What's the problem? And so gradually over time, my parents put two and two together and came up with four. Um, but they were still very, very distressed. And I think, you know, if I had told them straight away, apart from perhaps having a mental breakdown, and there's a strong possibility my stepfather at least would have turned me over to the police. So, you know, that was, that was my strategy at that particular time. And you know, even to this day or many years later, my parents say that was the right way of approaching it. And when you came over to Britain, what was your assessment of the political and social environment? Because the early 70s when you came over, was a time of black radicalism in London. You had, you know, hippies on the streets. You had youth rebelling. What was your assessment of all of this? Well, of course, there were two big differences between London and Melbourne. First of all, when I came to London in 1971, 
there'd already been a partial limited decriminalization of male homosexuality. You know, most aspects of gay male life remain criminalized, but significant things like sex between two men in private age 21 or over was no longer a crime, uh, which was a complete contrast to the total prohibition on same-sex relations in Melbourne. Um, the other big difference was, of course, that there was a very active and vocal LGBT movement here. Uh, the Gay Liberation Front had not long been formed. And I think within five days of me arriving in London, I was at my first meeting. Um, the other big difference on a wider political front was I was stunned how passive British political protest was compared to Australia. Um, you know, the standard, you know, protest was a march, an orderly march from Hyde Park to Trafalgar Square. Um, in Australia, in 1970, I, I played a small role in organising the Vietnam moratorium campaign, where we organised what is, was in effect the general strike against the war. Uh, we called it Stop Work to Stop the War. And in 1970, in Melbourne, which in those days only had a population of 1 million, 100,000 people turned out in the streets to demand an end to the war. Um, you know, at that period also, um, the Australian government was failing to address the issue of Aboriginal land rights and civil rights. So I was involved in many protests where there was civil disobedience and direct action to challenge the you know, mistreatment and the lack of basic rights for Indigenous Black Australians. Um, in that era also, the um, Greek colonels were in power, a military junta in Greece, um, and the response of the Australian unions was to um, ban all Greek shipping from docking um, at Australian ports. Uh, nothing like that had ever been done in Britain. Um, when it came to Britain, there was a war in Ireland at the time, and I was astonished how passive people were. Um, you know, there were no non-violent direct action or civil disobedience protests against the war. Um, there was no serious protests against um, killings by the British Army, um, apart from maverick people like Pat Arrowsmith, who very bravely and courageously call on British troops to refuse to serve in Ireland and to disobey orders to crack down on the Catholic and nationalist community. She went to prison several times um, because of her courageous stance uh, against the war and the killings there. And you mentioned you were involved with the Gay Liberation Front. And when we look at the lifespan of that, of the Gay Liberation Front, it was very short. What led to its demise and why isn't it still present today? Well, the Gay Liberation Front was a grassroots, non-hierarchical movement. Didn't have any, didn't have any leaders, had no officers, um, didn't have any funding. Um, it did have a, a small little office, I suppose, in the basement of Houseman's Peace Bookshop in King's Cross. But that was it. So it's very hard to maintain a radical direct action movement 
for a long period of time when you don't have any inst institutional organizational structure. And that was the problem. We, we didn't really have that backup. Plus, there were issues of, around, um, you know, there was tension between the men and the women within GLF. Um, a lot of the lesbians felt that there was not enough focus on women's issues. Um, there was also tension between sort of people who are more liberal, those who are more left-wing and anarchist, um, those who are into more lifestyle, countercultural types of activism. So I guess those are the cumulative reasons why GLF eventually imploded, but not before out of GLF, some very important things happened. First of all, the formation of the uh, very beginning uh, of the gay community press, uh, the first ever gay community newspaper, Gay News, um, the first um, counselling service run by and for LGBT plus people, icebreakers. Um, so there are lots of things like that that came out of GLF that are still around today, including Lesbian and Gay Switchboard. And if you phone London Lesbian and Gay Switchboard, uh, it is using the same phone number that was the office, the number for the office of the Gay Liberation Front way back in 1971. And some of those issues you talk about within uh, the Gay Liberation Front, you still see those tensions arising today with the LGBTQ plus community. So you have tensions, uh, not tension, but grievances aired out by black members of the community, of female members, of people who are gender non-binary. Do you think it's possible for LGBTQ plus people to come together and form a united front, or do you think you need these splinter movements to care for their individual needs? Well, I think you probably need both. Um, it is very important that we unite and work together because unity is strength. There's safety in numbers. There's strength in numbers. So I think we do need to unite. And we need to unite in a way that ensures there are spaces and voices for all the diverse sections of our community. I mean, we reflect the wider society. You know, you know within the LGBT plus movement and communities, there are people from every fragment of UK life. And... Sometimes uh, some of those fragments are not sufficiently recognized. They don't get a sufficient voice and we need to address that. I think also though, um, there is a case for different sections of those communities to have their own specific agendas, prides, events, and so on. So we've got UK Black Pride for black communities within the LGBT plus communities. We've got um, you know, lesbian pride, we've got prides for Muslims, uh, for Jews, for others. Um, you know, we are a very diverse community and it's quite right that diversity is reflected. Now, something that shocked me was, or may come surprising to my audience as well, is looking back at your 1981 Bermondsey Labour candidacy for the election because as you mentioned before you've been skeptical of authority and your politics seems to be anti-capitalist anti-governance what made you believe that it was right to go from protesting on the streets 
to now wanting to protest in Parliament? Well, I'd always been very skeptical of the Labour Party. Um, you know, its record was not great. In the mid to late 1970s, there was a big grassroots movement within Labour, personified by people like Tony Benn, to democratise the party and to reignite its radical socialist roots. So I took the decision at that stage that there was a hope that Labour could be a real force for progressive change. And that therefore, rather than just shouting on the outside, it was important to get involved. Um, initially, I never had any intention of seeking to be a member of parliament, but I helped transform the local Southern Bermondsey Labour Party um, to rebuild its mass membership, to re-engage with the local community and to spearhead campaigns, particularly against um, speculative office development on the riverside and the forcing out of local working class people. Um, so that led to me being selected as the Labour candidate. And of course, uh, the intention was that I'd be the candidate at a future general election. But then the existing right-wing Labour MP who was so angry about the changes within the local party, and in particular my selection, he resigned and forced a by-election. Now, during that campaign, you faced a lot of criticism. You had homophobic attacks, you had direct attacks on the streets, and you even had a few death threats. What was your experience of that campaign and what effect did it have on you personally? Well, many commentators say that the Bermondsey by-election of 1983 was probably the dirtiest and most violent and definitely most homophobic election in Britain since 1945. Um, it was like living through a low-level civil war. I had about 50 attacks upon my flat, including bricks and bottles through the window, three arson attacks, a bullet through the front door. I was physically beaten up over 150 times while canvassing in the constituency. There were two attempts to run me down the car. Um, I had scores of death threats. Um, it was a very, very scary moment. And this was partly because I was a radical left-wing candidate and partly because I was gay and in support of gay rights. I was targeted by far-right movements like the National Front and other assorted fascist organizations. And of course, I was vilified by the tabloid press and even by some people in the Labour Party, as well as opponents like the Liberals. It was, it was a very, very tough period. But I kept going because I was confident that I had ideas that needed to be heard and that I wanted to ensure that the bigots didn't win by grinding me down and forcing me out. And I want to move on to talking about, so that brings us on to the 90s. We've covered 70s, 80s, now 90s. You joined Outrage, which was another pro-gay organization. And the organization was involved in a lot of protests, campaigning, and also lobbying for LGBTQ plus people. But something else that I came across in my research was that 
the group also had some controversies. So for example, the splinter group Frox, and there were many other campaigns to try and out homophobic public figures and senior church officials. When you look back at the activities that took place under outrage, are you proud of that? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I wish we'd done much more. Um, Outrage was the inheritor of the tradition of the Gay Liberation Front. It was involved in nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience uh, to further LGBT plus rights. Much of our inspiration was from not only the Gay Liberation Front, but also the suffragettes and the black civil rights movement in America. Um, we argued that given that the powers that be would not address the injustices faced by our community, we had a right to use whatever peaceful means were necessary to challenge those authorities, to expose them and to defeat them. Um, yes, we did some provocative confrontational things, but then again, so has every movement for social justice throughout history. You know, the suffragettes, you know, put bombs in letterboxes. We never resorted to violence. Um, the suffragettes attacked cabinet ministers and government ministers in the street. We never attacked them. We did surround them and mob them and denounce them in public. That's true. And when it comes to outing, yes, we did name 10 Anglican bishops and call on them to tell the truth. They were preaching that we should all tell the truth, but they weren't being truthful about their own sexuality. And they were part of a church that was actively persecuting not only gay clergy, but the wider LGBT plus community. Now, the Anglican church in those days was opposing gay equality. It was saying the law should discriminate against us. So for these gay bishops to be part of a church, to be colluding with a church that was doing that, that was profoundly harmful. We did not out them because they were gay in the closet. It was because of their hypocrisy and collusion with homophobia. And I think that is the right, that was the right thing to do. For us, outing was queer self-defense. We never harmed anybody. We never used any violence but we did expose those who were two-faced by saying one thing in public and doing something different in private. And it did create huge controversy, but again, very hypocritical controversy, because at the same time, conservative government cabinet ministers who supported family values, but were exposed for having adulterous affairs behind their wife's back, they were exposed and everybody applauded it. When we did it, to defend our community against people doing harm, we were denounced. But I have absolutely no regrets whatsoever. It was the right thing we, do, we did. I wish we'd done it to more, to stop more people in power and authority harming LGBT plus people. You claim that you didn't cause any harm to anyone, but some may argue that the act of outing people is violent in itself, especially at the time that this was happening because that opened those people up to a lot of criticism and possibly um, threatened their lives in some circumstances. What happened to well, when they go low, we go high? What happened to that motto? 
Well, there's no evidence that any of them suffered any harm. There is evidence that they were deeply embarrassed. They felt guilty at having been exposed, but there was no harm caused. There was no harm caused. A bit of embarrassment and distress at being exposed, yes, but that was it. Now, you compare us to, <laughs> as said, the suffragettes, the violent methods they used, and they are now lauded as heroes and heroines. Um, you know, you compare us to um, many campaigners for national liberation in countries around the world, fighting imperialism and colonialism, who use violence and bombs. We never did any of that. Ours was totally nonviolent. You spoke earlier on about um, the personal struggles you had with coming out. So to use it against other people, do you think that was the right tactic? Do you, do well, you absolutely. If, if they're hypocritical, yes. But we didn't expose anybody just because they were in the closet. This is because they were preaching one thing. They were preaching against gay people or in colluding or, and or colluding with a church that was anti-gay um, while doing something different in private. It was the hypocrisy and homophobia we were targeting. Now, from one controversial act to another, I want to move on to talking about your two attempted uh, citizens' arrest on the Zimbabwean leader, Robert Mugabe. Could you talk to me about how the idea of performing a citizen's arrest came up and what happened when, when you did? Well, I received appeals from human rights defenders in Zimbabwe who said, you're very good at, you know, challenging and exposing tyrants and getting news publicity about human rights abuses. Please, will you do something to uh, expose President Mugabe? Um, you know, no one knows what's happening in our country. The world is looking the other way. So initially, I organized a series of pickets outside the Zimbabwe High Commission, which were good. They made some impact, but nothing significant. So I hit on the idea of using the power of citizens' arrest to get Mugabe put on trial. I knew that the government was not willing to act because of this uh, disgraceful convention between world leaders where they don't use laws against each other. So they're all protecting each other's back, basically. So um, although Mugabe was and is, has been very homophobic. Um, the bid to do a citizen's arrest was not because of his anti-gay stance. It was about wider, more general human rights abuses. Um, in particular, his use of torture. And I settled on torture as the legal basis because um, it is enshrined in international and British law that any state official who condones, authorizes, or acquiesces in acts of torture can be put on trial and can be sentenced. So it has a universal jurisdiction. Now, of course, once I developed this idea, the issue became when and how. And I had to wait for some months before late in 1999, I received a phone call, an anonymous phone call, on a Thursday night from a guy with a thick African accent who said, you might be interested to know that President Mugabe 
has arrived in London for a Christmas shopping trip at Harrods. He's staying at St. James's Court Hotel. He'll fly back to Zimbabwe from Heathrow Airport at 6 p.m. on Saturday night. Before I could ask any questions, the caller hung up. So I thought to myself, is this a hoax or a wind-up, or could it actually be true? So I assumed, I took the assumption, that it could be true. And so the next morning, I phoned up Amnesty International and got a dossier from two black torture victims in Zimbabwe, uh, the journalist Ray Choto and Mark Chavanduka. That was the legal basis for his arrest. And then I phoned around to try and get people who would come and help me try and arrest him. I've never heard so many plausible excuses in my life. I'm going away for the weekend. Uh, my girlfriend's come to visit. Um, I'm busy with work. So in the end, I turned to the LGBT plus direct action group Outrage. I knew that they were most likely because they had a history of direct action and doing provocative things. And I found very quickly three other people who are willing to come with me to try and arrest Robert Mugabe. So knowing he had to go back to Zimbabwe from Heathrow Airport at 6 p.m. on Saturday night, I reasoned that Saturday morning we should lay in wait outside his hotel and try and arrest him as he came out. So I also organized a journalist, a video person, and a photographer to come with us. So there could be independent recording and verification of what we were doing. Because I knew this would also possibly get us into serious legal trouble. And if President Mugabe's bodyguards were armed, we could even be shot or at least beaten up. So we, we lay in wait outside the St. James's Court Hotel near Victoria Station uh, on a Saturday morning, um, a very freezing cold Saturday morning. Um, one of us stood at a bus stop reading a newspaper. Another one went, was in a telephone booth saying to make phone calls. Um, others were looking in shop windows. Uh, we were trying to look inconspicuous. But hey, you know, after a couple of hours, <laughs> nevertheless, despite our efforts, um, the hotel staff apparently began to get suspicious. Um, the concierge came out and stood on the steps, and I saw him looking at us, looking at each of us, clocking us. Um, I knew he must have noticed that we were there. And I sort of panicked and you know, thought, well, if he notifies the police or anything, uh, our plans will go awry. Um, about not long afterwards, maybe maybe 15 or 20 minutes afterwards, from the side vehicle entrance of the hotel, five or six African-looking guys emerged and started looking and pointing in our direction. And my heart sank. Well, first of all, my heart actually leapt. I thought, I don't want to be presumptuous, but five or six African-looking guys, does this mean that President Mugabe's in the hotel? Are they his security team? Then, of course, my heart sank because I thought, if they are his guys and they're suspicious, they will call the police and the whole plan will go to pieces. So <laughs> in those circumstances, it's very difficult to think on your feet. 
I mean, I was so, so nervous. I was nervous about being arrested, nervous about beaten up, being beaten up, nervous about um, the whole plan, you know, falling apart. Um, I had a splitting headache. My stomach was churning over. You know, I was so nervous, I was shivering with the cold. Um, but then suddenly I had a brainwave. I strode over to those African-looking guys, smiling and beaming, with my hand held out to shake theirs. I said, hi guys, I'm from the news of the world. We've had a tip off that Elton John is in the hotel with his new boyfriend. We've got to get the story and photos for tomorrow's paper. Can you help us? Which room is he in? They looked startled and shook their heads. Um, I said, look, come on, I'll give you 50 pounds if you tell us which room he's in. I'll give you 75 pounds. I'll give you 100 pounds. I only had 10 pounds in my pocket. Uh, clearly, they weren't buying it. And then I had another idea. I turned to one of them and said, you can't fool me. I saw you at Elton John's concert at Wembley Arena two months ago. There was no Elton John concert two months previous. I saw you there. You were part of his security team. You wouldn't be in the hotel here if Elton John wasn't in this hotel as well. Please tell us which room he's in. So they began speaking in Nebadili or Shona, the Zimbabwean dialects and languages, and um, then burst out laughing and walked away. And I thought to myself, whew, maybe I've convinced them. And sure enough, about 10 or 15 minutes later, out from the vehicle entrance, comes President Mugabe in his limousine. I scratched the top of my head to indicate that it's him in the car, and my three colleagues ran out in front of his speeding vehicle. It screeched to a halt about six inches from their legs. Then one of them ran behind the car, so it couldn't go forward and couldn't go backwards. I ran from the side. Amazingly, the left rear door was unlocked. I opened it. There was President Mugabe. I reached him with my right hand and gently took his left arm. I held out my left hand with an open palm to show I didn't have a weapon. And then said, President Mugabe, you're under arrest on charges of torture. Torture is a crime under international law. I am now summonsing the police. You should have seen the look on his face. His jaw dropped. His eyes popped. He held up his hands like a frightened 10-year-old boy. He recoiled back in the corner of the seat. I think he thought he was going to be killed. To which I thought in my own mind, now you know what your victims feel like, only we're not going to kill you. We're going to take you to a court of law and you will have a chance to defend yourself. So we summoned the police. The police arrived. They were not interested in the fact that we had legal papers for Mugabe's arrest. They were simply interested in arresting us and allowing President Mugabe to go on his way. But there were only initially three officers. And it took two officers to remove each of us from the car and then take us and put us on the pavement. As soon as we were put on the pavement, we ran back in front of the car. So this cat and mouse game went on for a few minutes until reinforcements arrived. And then we were pretty aggressively 
uh, and roughly manhandled into police vans. And President Mugabe was given a police escort to go Christmas shopping at Harrods. I mean, um, do you honestly think that this would be successful? I thought it was a long shot, but I thought it was worth trying. And if nothing else, hopefully by trying, it would generate media coverage, which would alert the world to the human rights abuses that were happening inside Zimbabwe, which in those days were hardly being reported. And we've got to forget, we've got, we must never forget, that although a lot of issue was made about white farmers, most of the victims of Mugabe's tyranny were black Zimbabweans. Not only these two journalists who were tortured, but hundreds, even thousands of others. And in the 1980s, 20,000 black Africans were massacred in Matabili land and Midlands regions of Zimbabwe by Mugabe's forces. 20,000. That's the equivalent of a Sharpeville massacre every day for nearly nine months. But the world was looking the other way. No one really gave a damn. So our purpose was to try and make the world sit up and do something to save the lives of black Zimbabweans victimized by his regime. So like we've just spoken about there, you were, you've been concerned about issues going on in the global south, such as um, well, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and as we mentioned earlier, Aboriginal people's rights is something that is close to you. When you see all of these repatriation calls, so calls to repatriate artifacts from the British Museum, are you in support of that? And what message do you have to the British Museum and other institutions? I would say that um, museums and art galleries that have artifacts that were stolen from colonized countries uh, should be returned. Um, I think it's quite adequate if a copy was made. A copy could be held in the British Museum, but the originals should, with negotiation with the relevant museums and galleries in the origin countries, uh, that deal should be sealed. You know, it is not right that we have in Britain so much looted art from other countries uh, where Britain colonised and subjugated the, subjugated the people there. Now we're in this age of social media, so you have people who are utilising Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for work, business reasons, campaigning. Do you think that activism online on platforms such as Twitter serves a positive function or do you think there's a threat that all of this activism such as the Black Lives Matter movement, the hashtag MeToo movement will never actually formulate into direct political action? I think social media is a great boon and you know I salute people who use social media uh, to advance progressive causes. Um, and sometimes they can be very effective. You know, it was a social media campaign that got a pardon for Alan Turing. Um, many social ca campaigns, social media campaigns do work and do get results, but I don't think they're sufficient. You know, um, you know, whatever the protest is, whether it be online or in the streets, you need a range of different methods. And sometimes social media may work, 
Sometimes lobbying parliament may work. Sometimes protests in the streets may work. You have to use whatever is available and maximize whatever methods you can use. But I don't think collectivism is a substitute for wider activism. It's an ancillary, it helps, it adds to, and it can work, but by itself, it's not enough. People like you who have been involved in activism throughout their lives are often targets of a lot of criticism. What would you say to critics who say that activism has almost become your raison d'etre and you've lost the true objectives of these causes? Well, of course, activism is a means to an end. And the end is, in my view, social justice and human liberation. So I'm using activism not for its own sake, but to secure you know, liberation and justice. Um, when you look at activism, um, you know, it takes many different forms. And in so many instances, it has been successful. You know, really, all the fundamentally important changes throughout history have begun through protest outside of Parliament and other legislative forums. They've begun as grassroots movements. And this activism is what has empowered you know, so many successes in my lifetime. You think about Margaret Thatcher's poll tax. You know, she said this was a non-negotiable policy, but the poll tax protests, and in particular, the mass refusal of people to pay the poll tax or to delay their poll tax payments was incredibly effective because it forced the Conservative government to abandon the poll tax. So protest does work and it is effective. Um, when I do a protest, um, a lot of the rationale and thinking is, you wanna put the authorities under pressure. Well, to do that, you've got to make the protest visible. You've got to get it in the media. You've got to raise public awareness. Um, if an issue isn't in the news, then it's going to be really difficult to get change because people in power often re only respond when the spotlight of public awareness is shone upon them, when they're exposed and embarrassed and shamed. And so that's why doing protests that get on the news is a very effective way of raising public awareness about an issue, mobilizing public opinion to support, and putting people in power under pressure. As well as the criticism, your life has been put in danger many times. Do you ever feel for your personal security when you're out on these campaigns or speaking out about these causes? Well, of course, um, when I've been to places like Moscow to stand in solidarity with the Moscow LGBT plus movement, um, I have been very afraid because they and I were under threat from neo-Nazis that we would be killed. And in Russia, neo-Nazis do kill people. So of course I was afraid, but I felt I had to do something to support the very brave Russian LGBT plus campaigners who live with these threats day in and day out. The least I can do is go there for a few days to stand in solidarity and to also bring British and international media to Moscow to witness the reality of the repression by the state 
in that city. Um, for me, I don't want to put myself at risk, but sometimes you have to. And all throughout history, it's been the same story. You know, when I was growing up in the 1960s, inspired by the Black Civil Rights Movement, I used to see every month, and sometimes even more often, the tragic stories of black civil rights activists murdered, lynched in some cases, by white racists. You know, those African-Americans put themselves on the line to win freedom for black Americans, to end desegregation, to end segregation, to secure desegregation, to end the exclusion of black people from voting rolls. You know, I have never been in prison. I've been arrested over a hundred times, um, but I've never been imprisoned. I've never been tortured. I've certainly never been killed. But that is the story of many human rights defenders around the world, sadly. So I count myself lucky, and I think the risks that I have taken have been well worth it. What would you say has been the biggest sacrifice you've made? <laughs> well, I guess... Um, my personal and social life has not been as um, good as I would have liked. Um, you know, I've been doing this for over 53 years. Um, and it's a great joy and something I do willingly and, you know, because I believe in it. But it's meant that for many years I lived in pretty dire poverty because I did this full time, unpaid. Um, it's meant that... Um, Sometimes my relationships are broken up because partners I've been with couldn't stand the heat and the threats and the danger that I was in and that I'd put them in. Um, it's meant that just the, the joys of life of going out to the theatre and, you know, you know, going out clubbing and things like that, I, I probably did much less of that than I would have if I hadn't been an activist. But on balance, I think all those sacrifices have been more than worth it. Because, you know, I've been part of so many important social movements. And I, together with millions of others, we collectively have made change happen. You know, I think of so many things, so many things that seemed insurmountable injustices, which are now history. And I'm really honoured and proud to have been a small part of that process. And to conclude, I want to go through some quick fire round uh, questions for you to complete. So complete the sentence. The biggest misconception about me is? Uh, the biggest misconception about me is that um, I haven't got a sense of humor. But you have to know me really well to discover it. <laughs> My biggest regret is? Um, not doing more. I'm most energized by? Um, successes. When campaigns get results and I can see a positive change that I've helped contribute to, that's a great energizer. What I fear most is? Well, I used to say my greatest fear was being killed. And given the huge number of physical violent assaults, more than 300 in my years of decades of activism uh, and the many, many death threats. Um, I, I really did fear being killed or at least seriously injured. Now, um, those are, are pretty rare, very rare in fact. Um, 
So I say my, my biggest fear now is not to be able to carry on for another 30 years. And finally, I am most proud of. I'm most proud that I've been part of so many wonderful movements with so many extraordinary people who cumulatively and collectively have helped change, reform, overturn some injustices. And we haven't done it at all. And my part was very, very tiny. But that's what I'm most proud of, to be part of a movement to bring about change. Peter Tatchell, thank you for joining me on Telefriend. Thank you.